This is our new fall kickoff sermon series. We're calling it the post church church. Dun, dun, dun. What does that even mean? You might be asking. Well, we invite you to stick around over the next few weeks because we're going to be exploring some ideas around who and what we are becoming as a community, what our goals and values are, and how we are imagining the idea of church, which is a pretty old idea with the checkered history, some good influences and some bad, some good outcomes and some bad ones, into a new era. And we are acknowledging as fearlessly as we can that we're in a post-church era, the sway that religion and church once had over people's lives and behaviors has diminished significantly in the last 50 years. And the old way of doing and thinking about things, those ways just don't necessarily work anymore. So we must shift our paradigms. And we're asking, what should we keep that is life-giving and bright? And what should we let go of that is harmful and outdated? We must embrace the new while still remaining tethered to an ancient spiritual tradition in ways that bring us life and joy and peace and that bring heaven to earth. So we're trying to work with what is rather than trying to pretend that it isn't. Yes. So today I want to explore this with y'all specifically in reference to the concept of worship. Worship. And I I want you to know that I'm assuming a posture of a fellow sojourner. Like I'm not trying to be some authority. I'm not trying to tell you what to think, but I am simply sharing with you where I have landed on this stuff as of now, knowing that I'm always in evolution. I'm always changing too. And I'm a person who spent the last 18 years of my life thinking about and talking about and reading about and leading worship. And then towards the end of my talk, because so so many of us associate the word worship with music and singing, I want to tell you why I think it still makes sense for us to sing together in the post-church church. So stick around for that. But if you've been around for a while, you may have heard me say before that I'm kind of over the word worship. I don't really like it anymore. I would be done with it altogether were it not for a long line of spiritual tradition that affirms that that word. And I would really, really like to reclaim a definition of it that is relevant and resonant for us actual humans in the here and now. But in general, it's a word that I tend to avoid because it doesn't really say what I mean. And it's really hard for me to avoid it because it's everywhere I turn as a pastor, pastor of worship and liturgy. So lately, which by which I mean, like in the last 50 years or so, worship has become kind of a congregational catch-all word that means the service we produce or the gathering we facilitate, which I'm sorry, I just think that's kind of etymologically lazy and it bothers me because I'm very particular about clear language. And if it doesn't mean that, else it means, and I fully admit that this is reductive, okay? It means sort of, this adoration from afar of this supreme being who is detached from us and separate from us and out there. Like God is out there and there's this pervasive idea in mainstream faith and church, like, um, which you may guess that I'm 
pushing back on pretty hard that is that God is this egotistical glory hungry deity that needs or worse requires us to give him and I say him because that God is a dude adoration verbal praise jumping through various hoops we're supposed to worship him um, for the purpose of either a God being reassured of reassured of God's goodness because I don't maybe God's insecure or b us being reminded of our inferiority to God. I'm never kind of, I'm never quite sure which it is. And I really push back on that. Okay. I really, I'm totally out about the fact that I push back on that. And look, probably a lot of church people would say I'm a heretic, but those are just not theological that ideas that resonate for me as truth anymore. At this point in my journey, as I've come to understand and experience the divine in recent years, I just don't buy that line of thought anymore that was taught to me. Right now, I'm more convinced than ever of the divine's indwelling presence within us, around us, near to us. And I'm more convinced than ever of that thing that Jesus says over and over in the scriptures, The kingdom of God is near. It's right here. The kingdom of God is within. It's within you and you and you. That's Luke 17. The community of heaven is waiting right here for us to become aware of it and align ourselves with it. The wheels of eternity are spinning and accessing that reality is a simple matter of directing our awareness, most often directing it to the quote, interior castle. As Teresa, as Teresa of Avila calls it, or to the heart, as so much of scripture refers to it. So all that said, you know, all of my little like sarcasm aside, I stand in great appreciation of the tradition of the Psalms. The Psalms were for centuries, the prayer book that is the main liturgical guide of the global church. And in many ways, they still are. We heard our Psalm for today that Tracy read, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork day to day, pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge and so on. They're words to the end of the world. And other Psalms, if you study them, exhort the listener to sing, make melody, Worship God with gladness, exalt exalt the Lord, and so forth. So there's this very beautiful and ancient tradition within Christianity of reverence for the divine and of living in a posture of attention and attentiveness to the divine and of beholding creation and expressing appreciation for it. So the Psalms give us this idea upon which I would say most of the modern worship industry has been built of praising God, glorifying God, which I think has turned into something interesting. And I'm not so much here today to critique that thing that it has turned into. Okay. Like in some context, it's the emotional music and the dimmed lights and the smoke machines and the experiences uh, that are produced, or in other contexts, it's you know, the booming organ and the choir and the gilded accoutrement that we produce, and then we call it worship. But I'm not much here to, I'm not here to critique that so much as I am here to just share with you 
that over the course of 18 years, I've come to a new understanding and I discern a different set of needs for us in the post-church church. I say that humbly. I say that as a person who's just experiencing life. Like I could be wrong about some things and right about others. I'm not condemning any church practice, but I am questioning really deeply what is needed for moving forward. So the most profound shift for me has been in how I define worship. It is my current best thought over the last few years that worship distilled down to its essence is very simply attention. Okay, attention is, as Simone Weil wrote, the rarest and purest form of generosity. And Mary Oliver wrote, which I, I included it in the guide at the top, uh, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention being the roots of our devotion or of our worship. So I really hope this idea helps you. I hope it helps you and I hope it lets you off whatever hooks you might've been on if you had a churchy upbringing that told you that you had to jump through a bunch of certain specific hoops and check a lot of certain specific boxes to show that you're worshiping God. Because I know that a lot of us here have come from a more traditional or we've come from more evangelical spaces. And if you're like me, you might be questioning that worship culture and wondering what to do with it now. What, how, what, how does it apply to me now? But here it is. I think that worship in its tiniest, most essential pixels is attention. I hope that, hears, that helps you to hear. Our worship or our attention is always going somewhere. It's always pointed in some direction. And I think that's actually, um, it, it's actually our most important resource as humans. Like where is our attention directed towards whom or towards what issues or what beauty? And I am absolutely concerned both as a pastor in a spiritual community and just as a regular spiritual and kind of contemplative person with where we are directing our attention. And I see the psalmic tradition as sort of a record and guide for a spiritual community trying to direct its collective attention toward the divine. So in a post-church world, one in which I personally no longer perceive God or the divine as this heavenly out there personality who's hungry for glory, but rather a force I'm learning to understand as being both near to me and inside myself and inside of other people. So a post-church world in which I no longer conceive of the kingdom of God as some afterlife destination, but rather an attainable, sustainable reality in the here and now. I'm free to understand the concept of worship differently. Instead of perceiving worship as like a production that we create for God's benefit, I'm thinking of it more as a moment by moment practice of directing my attention toward the divine as I encounter it both in the world and within myself. So to get into, I guess, the mechanics of this, 
I want to share with you a few other key concepts besides attention being the main one that I'm mindful of. And they are reverence, justice, and liturgy. Okay, the first is reverence. I want to read to you a little bit of what John, o John O'Donohue writes about reverence in this book, Beauty, Rediscovering the True Sources of Compassion, Serenity, and Hope, that I've been meditating on in the mornings here lately. Listen, <clears throat> in order to become attentive to beauty, we need to re rediscover the art of reverence. Ultimately, reverence is respect before mystery. But it is more than an attitude of mind. Reverence is also physical, a dignified attention of body showing that sacred is already here. Reverence is not to be reduced to a social posture. Reverence bestows dignity, and it is only in the light of dignity that the beauty and the mystery of a person, a book of God, as Forrest, as Forrest said, will become visible. Reverence is not the stiff, pious posture which remains frozen and lacks humor and play. To live with a sense of reverence is not to become a prisoner of dull piety. Playfulness, humor, and even a sense of the anarchic are companions of reverence because they insist on the proper proportion of the human presence in light of the eternal. Reverence is also the companion of humility. A sense of reverence includes the recognition that one is always in the presence of the sacred. To live with reverence is to live without judgment, prejudice, and the saturation of consumerism. The consumerist heart becomes empty and lonesome because it has squandered reverence. That kind of gave me shivers. Um, so he's connecting the art of reverence with like everything we want to be in life, right? It's kind of remarkable. It feels like maybe reverence is another one of those cheat codes for life that we sometimes joke about around here. Oh, we found another cheat code, reverence, maybe a, a reverent posture. So as our worship, I think we're invited to assume a posture of reverence toward all the divine sparks we see in the world, all the evidence of coherent creation that we encounter, all the complex life forms, moment by moment, day by day, as a spiritual practice, maintaining reverence. We practice this attentiveness to what is, to beauty wherever we found it, because we know that all beauty is evidence of the divine, right? You knew that? Not like surface level beauty culture beauty. I mean, life force, nitty gritty, imago dei, God in everything kind of beauty. Okay. Reverence. The next kind of buzzword that I'm, I'm throwing around here is justice. Okay, I'm calling it a buzzword, but that's not really what I mean. Uh, a defining concept, okay? Okay, here's what Sandra Maria Van Opstel says. She defines justice as the reordering of creation back to God's original intent, where we were made and created to stand together in solidarity and mutuality as one humanity. Okay, I think that part of our worship is working in partnership with the divine to achieve justice on earth. Okay, true justice that lifts the lowly, that enacts 
grace, mercy, and righteousness in the world that ceases oppression, that provides for the orphan, the widow, the sick, the unjustly imprisoned, that seeks to root out unjust systems. And if our so-called worship, our attentiveness to God is not causing us to awaken to God inside ourselves so that we begin to do what God does in the world, then it isn't worship. What's the character of God? What's the character of God? The Psalms say that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. God protects the simple and feeble, uplifts the lowly, extends compassion to the forgotten. And as we pay attention, more and more attention to God, both within ourselves and outside ourselves, we gradually, naturally take on more and more of that work of bringing justice to earth, of reordering creation back to God's original intent of oneness. It's because of our worship that we attend to social justice, to working to eradicate racial inequality, to smashing the patriarchy, to abolishing the prison industrial complex, to providing for the poor, to caring for the grieving, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, so Jesus Jesus didn't say much about worship when he walked on this earth. He did say, and he said it to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And here's what I take that to mean. True worshipers will worship with our attention and our action, with our devotion and our justice making. And we do this because we've awakened to the imago dei, to ours and other people's imago dei. We are created in the image of God and beings who are created in the image of God can't help but work toward justice on the earth. Okay, justice. Last one, liturgy. Okay, the point of liturgy by which I'm specifically referring here right now to the songs and prayers and rituals and practices that we cultivate together in our communal gatherings. Okay, the point of all that is in my opinion, to assist us in remembering our Imago Dei. Liturgy serves as a reminder to us of who we truly are and What's the bigger story we are part of? The bigger story of what divine love is accomplishing in the world and has accomplished in us as part of the world. Okay, it's why our liturgy is so important around here. And we put so much time and energy and effort into it because it's like food. You are what you eat. Well, you are the liturgy that you practice on a daily basis. So we pay attention to liturgy in a very deep way. And I said earlier that I wanted to mention songs and singing. Um, my first year on staff here, I, I preached a sermon that explained why I think singing matters. And I just want to quickly recap some of those ideas. But I did include a link to that uh, sermon in the guide there at the bottom. Um, under this heading of liturgy. Okay, songs are liturgy. They're here to remind us of our true selves and our part in the big story. Every human culture on the planet has some tradition of singing or chanting, okay? Singing is innate to human beings. I really go into this in that other sermon. 
I'm not gonna preach that sermon again. You can go listen to it. Scientists now know that singing is actually a powerful vagal nerve stimulator, which means it activates our parasympathetic nervous system, which calms and soothes us and helps us recover from stress. We also know that music accesses the human memory systems in a way that's different from just words with no music. Like songs we memorize have a particular staying power in our memory, in our memories. So by singing our liturgy, we remember it better. That's why you can still remember the lyrics to songs you knew in high school, or you can remember TV ad jingles. But what are we trying to remember here? Again, we're trying to remember our true selves in the image of God and the bigger story of God's and our work in the world. We also now have science that demonstrate that demonstrates that human beings bond powerfully by doing a rhythmic motion together. It's called self-other merging as a consequence of interpersonal synchrony. There are scientific and biological reasons that human beings experience profound, a profound sense of connection with one another when we do rhythmic noise making together, i.e. making music. Not to mention, we know that this interpersonal synchrony activates our endorphin cascades, our happy, happy hormone chemicals in our bodies, and that makes us feel good. For me, that alone is reason for us to prioritize communal music. It's interactive art, but it's also connection and belonging, and it's us learning in a very real way, in a tangible way, to live in harmony with one another. So that said, just to kind of let you in on my brain, how my brain works, um, there are three song, kinds of songs that we sing at peace. First is songs that tell the big story of God's love and character in community. Um, examples are the Canticle of the Turning or Your Peace Will Make Us One. Second kind, songs that are prayers, that are actually communications between us and the divine. And the third, the third kind of songs that I typically include in our repertoire are songs that express a particular emotion or posture, such as lament or grief or joy or gratitude. And I choose our songs very intentionally because if it's going to be a liturgy that we're getting into our brains, it better be good. It better be good and right and true and it better matter. Because if our liturgy isn't fostering and reinforcing our justice work, then what's it here for? What is it doing? So, so if you ever think that I'm being really gatekeepy about the songs that we sing, you're right. It's because I am. Because I want us singing the good stuff in our community. Because I know the power of it. So I'm getting done. What are we actually doing here? Okay, what's the point of any of this? Okay, for me, even in the post-church world, sacred community and spiritual support are still important. Building a network of folks who are trying to do this thing in the midst of modern life, trying to be attentive and reverent to the divine in the world, trying to encourage one another in a life of doing the work of bringing the way of love, bringing the community of heaven to earth in the here and now. And it's hard. 
It's hard work. It's hard to maintain any sort of spiritual awareness, especially on our own. Like at any moment, we might get swept up in that consumerism that John O'Donohue mentions. We might get swept up in complacency and apathy or in the 24-hour news cycle or in addiction or obsession. And we might completely lose any sense of the bigger story of why we're here and what's our work and who are we really. So the work that we're doing here at Peace, which is tricky, against the grain sort of work, is we're trying to keep ourselves awake to that bigger story and to our role in the grand scheme of things, to mystery, to capital L love, and to our true selves. We're trying to be a community of people who can stay awake long enough amidst a tide of things that would distract us and put us to sleep long enough to be the peace of Christ on earth. It is a very grand goal, but we're committed to it. And it's the point of our worship, by which I mean our attention, our reverence, our justice, and our liturgy. And we recognize that need in each other to inspire and encourage one another, to remind each other of our truth and to help us up when these tidal waves of overwhelm knock us down as they're doing all the stinking time, you guys. That's what we're doing. And I would argue that that work of staying awake, of remembering, of attention, that's our worship. And any gathering or service we ever create in person or on Facebook or Zoom, any space we ever manage is always in service of that larger work. The liturgy we use or create serves to remind us of the bigger story and of the character of God that is resonant with our true selves. The songs we sing tell the bigger story. The rituals we do embody the bigger story. The community engagement that we do is in service of that bigger story of heaven on earth. And the sacred community that we build here among ourselves is in service of this bigger story, this wider reality of the way of love that we perceive Christ as having embodied on this earth and which we now seek also to embody. All right. Amen. I'm going to turn it over now.